Zane Lowe, Apple Music. Hey, what's up? It's Zane. Thanks for joining me for another conversation on the interview series. Well over a hundred now in-depth conversations with some of the world's most incredible and authentic voices in the arts. And today is a super special conversation. It always is when you have a rare opportunity to spend time with the iconic Stevie Nicks. We don't need an amateur Wikipedia breakdown of what Stevie Nicks has achieved throughout her life. If you don't know, this isn't a good hour of your time. But if you do, then I'd like to think this is one of the best conversations we've done on the interview series to date. It flows really fast. We cover a huge amount of ground. We talk about her return to music and a song that's very close to her heart, her long-awaited tour, which is currently underway, and some really fond memories about relationships formed that led to collaborations and had a deep impact on her life's journey. The incredible Stevie Nicks is my guest. Can't even believe I said that right here on the interview series. Congratulations. I'm reading the reviews that are coming in from from Clarkston, from the opening show. I know you waited a long time and you know did it thoughtfully and safely, and the reviews are incredible. I read one headline on Consequence that said that your return to the stage was dazzling, Stevie. Oh, that is so nice. I don't really read the reviews, not because I don't want to, but because we're just moving so fast. You know, that it's like, and there's so much to do when you're on this. Uh, we haven't been on tour in three years. So it's like, wow, let's see, what do we do now kind of thing, you know, where you forget all your tricks of the trade when you're out here. You forget all those little things. So it's like there's no time to sit around and read newspapers. Not that there's newspapers anymore, but I'm not really a computer person. So it's funny you talk about not touring for three years. You know, no one has effectively toured for three years. And, and, and I know that this was supposed to happen some time ago. And I wondered how the sort of tour changed for you the idea of doing these shows that you were ready to do changed for you in that time and how it feels coming back we went out in the very beginning of the summer and we did three shows we went into rehearsal for two weeks then we did three shows then we came home for almost four weeks then we did five shows and then we came home for two months that was the bulk of the really hot part of the summer. And then we just went back out and we just, I mean, we've done three shows, I guess. So I have to tell you, I mean, after being at home watching miniseries and, you know, like uh, not leaving the house hardly ever and being in a small bubble of, we had like a sorority house kind of bubble and, uh, and then just bang into rehearsal and Bang, right back on the road. And outdoor shows, which I, I swore off outdoor shows about 10 years ago because Why? He, he is not my friend. It's not my friend. You know, and if you dress and you have outfits and I'm wearing a, my, my choice of outfit is a, is a black velvet jacket that's very from the past that I love, but it's a black velvet jacket. But anyway, it's really hot. I have like floor length hair now, which is very hot. So it's it's like I'd, I'd prefer to be indoors because it's, you know, it's more, for me, it's more dressy. It's kind of more sophisticated. The sound is way, way better for me. I don't know how it is out there because I'm not out there. But how it is for me and my ear monitors is much better. You know what the sound is going to be because a big building doesn't change all that much. But outdoor venues change at every single venue. One will be great. The next one will just be awful. And there's nothing you can do. It's the weather. If it's really humid, it's different than if you happen to run into a dry day in Florida. Then it's like different than it was where it was supposed to be um, dry. And it was all of a sudden up in like, you know, like say Colorado or something. All of a sudden they're going like, wow, the big humidity's coming in. 
And you're like, what the hell? There is no humidity in Colorado. So, but there is on the day you're going there. And I think about the touring and the way things have changed. And, and it's interesting you talk about being indoor now and being able to control your environment more. And, and that really is the benefit of technology and evolution in the, in the live space. But when you were first coming out playing you know, arenas and you were one of the first bands to regularly do arenas and if not the first band to go out there and, and do stadiums on that scale, you didn't have any of those mod cons or any of those luxuries to be able to, to sort of lean into any ears to that degree. I mean, do you have memories of what it was like going out there and it probably felt like you were playing a backyard show, but it was in front of 80,000 people? Well, that's true. But you have to remember, between 1975, when I joined Fleetwood Mac, I was 28. I was old, just about 28, not quite. I was older than people would have probably thought because I looked really young, so I was deceiving. But um, it was a, you know, when you're really young and you're really in a brand new, big, huge band, for that first 10 years, really nothing bothers you. The sound doesn't even bother you. Nothing bothers you because you're having such a good time and it's like, it's a free-for-all, you know? It's just great and you're not worried. It's not your problem if it doesn't sound good out front because you're not out front. And, and you don't have ear monitors stuck in your head, blowing your head off and giving you like ear problems. You're just, you're just getting your head blown off from a set of, ear, of monitors that are at your feet that are so loud that, you know, you can't tell if the sound's good or not. You're just on a wing and a prayer. <laughs> so as long as you're just on a wing and a prayer, then who cares? It's like, you know, whatever, bring it on. But as you get older, you get more finite and you get more like you want it to really sound great. You do. So you're not as, you don't easily suffer mistakes that make you know that you did sound great, but then you'll hear it back. And in the, in the old days, you'd like get in the car and you'd get in your limo, right? And you, the first thing you'd hear would be like, Fleetwood Mac live at, say, Pine Knob, and we're going to play you the whole show. And you're wondering, how'd you get the whole show? <laughs> and you realize they recorded it on a cassette from the audience. And so you look and you go, oh, my God. And so you have a 40-minute ride to the plane, and you're like, you have never heard anything so bad in your yeah, life. Yeah, that's not fair. That's not cool. You can't even believe it's you. 103.6 in Seattle needs to stop doing that on, a, on an immediate. Irving, Irving needs to go in there with a battering ram and shut that yeah, he down does. immediately. Here's the worst concert that Fleetwood Mac ever did in the, in the six <laughs> years that they've been together. And we're going to play the live whole thing Live on the for radio. You. Live on the radio. <laughs> it's 64 after 23 in the hour right now, and here's Fleetwood Mac's worst concert in full worst right concert, here. third ever. Yeah. So you're like, by the time you get to the airplane, you're like depressed. <laughs> that's, yeah, I think, when yeah. everybody really started drinking, because that's, you're like, did that really just happen? We thought we did a pretty good job. We thought it was a pretty darn good concert. And like you're like, oh, we're out of the business. The illusion is shattered completely. You completely. wonder how musicians get through this at all. I think about this show that you just did, and, and I was reading a review, and I know, and it, it mentioned that you came on, your band comes on and prepares at the start of the show to Running on a Dream by Tom Petty. I thought that was really moving. I actually stopped reading it for a second, and I... And I thought about the decision uh, to come on to that song and what it means to you and why you chose it. There's obvious reasons, but I'd love to hear from you what it means to you because walk-on music's important, you know? Tom was one of my best friends in the world. I met him in 1979, the end of 1979. He gave me Stop Dragging My Heart Around and recorded, had already recorded it and sang it with me. And I didn't even know him. So he and I were really, really dear friends for the rest of until he passed away. I'm also doing free falling at the end of the show. 
we did that. We also did that in Fleetwood Mac three years ago, at the at the end of our show. And I, it's just one of my favorite TP songs. And so you know, and then when we come off, we play "Learning to Fly." It's like I don't know. I think I just want to keep him with me. I just want to keep him here as long as I can. You know, I have sometimes like I'm in tears. Sometimes I'm. I can smile with a little bit of the remembrance of the hysterical person he was, you know. And um and sometimes I I wish, you know, I'm like, oh I just have all the weight of the world of the fact that he isn't here anymore. So it's uh it's kind of a three-pronged thing for me with with the songs that I do, with the songs that I listen to. I listen to a lot of Tom Petty radio because for me, it's like he spent so much time in a little Culver City studio doing, making all those great things like, here's Tom Petty and I'm going to play this and that. And, and then he'll tell a ridiculously stupid joke, right? And you just have to laugh. Because, and, the, and the heartbreakers were starting to get really jealous because he loved it so much. I think that had Tom lived, that he would have gone on to be like a, radio, a full-on radio disc jockey, whatever, podcaster, whatever. That would have been perfect. Because that's what he, he seemingly lo- started to love that more than performing. Yeah, it, it, and it would have been such an amazing, I mean, what it could have, but it, that would have been a perfect way for Tom to connect all the dots of his life because he he was, you know, a huge music fan. And I think that's that's why he could he could sort of take the music of the people that inspired him and be so authentic in that space. And, and because it, I always got the feeling that he was a fan first. He was, and he actually had so many, so many great stories about all the different older artists, and he managed to meet a lot of them. And because of his whole blues thing, you know, he was able to really fit into so many different genres. And he, he was a real music connoisseur. And there's so many different sides of Tom, you know. I mean, it's like this really sweet Tom and the really really Tom that would just say like you better do that again and do it right it was so many different he had so many different personalities but I really was I mean like his ex-wife Jane Petty said besides me Stevie I think that you're the best friend that Tom ever had and I thought that was the nicest thing that anybody in Tom's world ever said about me because I think so I agree I was a really close friend of his. It's hard for me every day and probably always will be. You know, there's other moments in the show as well as, you, as you're playing your songs where, you know, I, I believe Led Zeppelin shows up and someone mentioned that there's a real nod to Prince in the show as well. So in, in a way, for you to be able to refer to these people that you've known throughout your life and, and incorporate them into what sounds like a really incredible run through songs that people know and love, songs that are deep cuts for real fans. It sounds like a set list that's been really rewarding to put together. Yes, I do. And all the stories. I mean, Prince and I were good friends. It's like he he and I inspired each other back and forth. I wrote Stand Back Inspired by Little Red Corvette. It sounds like he's playing on that song. It's so incredible. I mean, it, it's just... A- yeah, well, he is. <laughs> he is playing on it. <laughs> I love this. Because I had to call and get his permission because I, I sang along to Little Red Corvette on the radio and I wrote the song. I had a piece of paper and pencil, and I wrote the song in the car. And um, then I went back to Los Angeles and recorded it, but I had to call him. So I finally got a number, and I just said, so, uh, so Prince, this is Stevie Nicks. <laughs> and I, uh, I wrote a song to your track, Little Red Corvette, and I would like for you, I don't know if you're in town or not, but I'm at Sunset Sand, and are you here? And he goes like, yeah, I'm here. And I said, well, could you come down? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, Sunset Sound. And he walked in 15 minutes later. What? And so he did play on it. 
And he also was there kind of for when we were, we had a really, a really, you know, bones dry track that we had already recorded. But it was good, but it was very simple. And it was the song, but it was very simple. So he went in and he played keyboards on it. And then he played some, some guitar on the middle part. And if you really listen to it, you'll find it in there. But so wow. anyway, and I just I gave him half the song, and everybody's happy. And then from that day onward, he he worried about me and my drug addiction. Yeah, and he would be always like somewhat loved me and somewhat was so worried about me he couldn't hardly stand it. So it's like we had you know we we had long long conversations about it and on the phone. So our relationship went on from about whenever Stand Back came out until. He died. Mm. It wasn't an in-person relationship all the time, but it was. We talked a lot, and when I got all better in 1995 after my last rehab, he was so thrilled and happy. And you know, so yes, also Edge of Seventeen, he loved, and so that that inspired him to write When Doves Cry. So when I sing it now, it's like you know, I know what at the end. It's like I know what I know what it sounds like. I know what it sounds like when doves cry. Yes. So. It's, that's how the song ends, and it's it's like the direct connection. Then on to a song called 17 Days that he wrote that I gave him a book that was called 17 Letters to an Unknown Lady by Lord Byron. And uh, so I he was he did come to my house to take me to dinner the one time in our life. And uh, there was this book in the library of this rented house, and it was called 17 Letters to an Unknown Lady. And he, I, I, gave, I said, look at this cool pink book. It's like this long, skinny book. And he's like, wow, that's such a cool book. And he's like, can I have it? And I'm like, well, neither of us owns it, so I guess you can. We'll just so, steal that's it. That's hilarious. We'll just steal it. So it's Can yours. I have it? So, okay, can I have it? And so anyway, he went home and wrote 17 Days, which, you know, and there's a, it is said that the Raspberry Beret was somewhat inspired by me, not the part about walking around with nothing but the beret on, but <laughs> the fact that I had a Raspberry Velvet Beret and he had seen it and liked it. So it's like little things that we both did inspired us. So yeah, we have his, we have faint pictures of him all through um, Edge of 17 that I don't see every night because I'm, I don't turn around and look, right? But the audience sees. The connections are all there and very real and very alive today as they always were. So losing Tom and Prince in the same time was, I mean, very close to each other, was very weird. But what a life. What, I mean, how can you, I, I, I say this to people, how can you not believe that music is the most magic? You know, when you can find someone who's a kindred spirit and be able to trace so many connections of life-changing moments, not just for the two of you, but for us, passionate music fans. These songs wouldn't exist without the two of you in this beautiful relationship. That is the magic of it. It's true. And it's like music, when people say that music is the only language that is universal and that you can, you can get people to stop and listen to you with music, whereas in if you start giving them a lecture, you're going to lose them. Yeah, it's true. Or if you go on social media, it's going to get twisted or the news is going to take it a certain way. It's a pure, it's a pure filter. It's as pure a filter as we can expect and hope for in, in this day and age. And, I, and I'm so happy that that's my work. You know, I mean, that's what I do. And I'm really happy that I, because I get to people with songs a lot better than I do when I sit them down and give them a lecture. I would have been that <laughs> kind of a school teacher, you know, been like, we're going to listen to some music. It's going to say what I want to <laughs> say. 
because I know you're not going to listen to to Miss to Miss Nix. So we're going to go another way. Miss Nix is a badass. That's a badass teacher's name, though. I have to say. I mean, that's you know, you're definitely going to get the teachers the the, the, the class's attention. Miss Nix, no question. Miss Nix, and yes, I am a rock star also. So you better <laughs> listen to me. I'm t- this is I'm doing a master's degree at 70 years old, right? So you better. I'm here for a reason. You know, you've chosen a beautiful song, a timeless song, and and given it a really tasteful version to, to us and for what it's worth. And I guess that speaks to what I was saying before about the, the purity of music and the filter and what that song means. It can be applied to people's lives in lots of different ways, but you can never forsake the message in that song, no matter how you apply it, right? And for me, the the few things that I will say about for what it's worth right now, this morning I was just sitting, sitting on my bed and thinking like, what does the words for what it's worth mean? Does it mean like if you care it's like for what it's worth this is what i named the song if you care that's what why i I named the song that or does it mean this is what i do it for, for for what it is worth or for what it's worth i'm a i'm a podcast genius for what it's worth means like if you care yeah i'm a podcast genius and I hope you care. But for what it's worth, maybe you don't. You know, you just don't ever know. So what? I'll tell you why I, I used it. Since 1966, when it was first written, I was a big Buffalo Springfield fan. So then it, we moved quickly towards the future. And like, say, 1968 is probably when I really started listening to Crosby, Seals, and Nash. But the fact is, I, I think. So what happened was, is that then I really became a, a big fan of that song. And even in those early days, right that was right when I joined the band with Lindsay. It was 1968 in San Francisco. And I, in my little head, thinking that, yes, of course, this is going to work out, I said, I'm going to record that song someday. And I planned on doing it, too. And it took a whole long time to do it. But the reason that I recorded it was because a week after the Uvalde shooting, I recorded it. I just said, I just want to, it just came into my head, you know, sometimes you're just sitting on the couch and sometimes it'll just come into your head and you didn't even look for it and it just comes. So I thought, okay, I'm going to record it. And I called my my favorite producer, Greg Kirsten, and I said, I'm going to, I would like to record this. And he goes like, okay, great. He like recorded it he like played everything except the lead guitar solo by Wadi Wachtel. And, and I went in and sang it. And, you know, with this whole COVID thing, it wasn't, well, it's not all so easy to just do that. But we, we did it. And I, I you know, it's, we wanted to put it through a record company because it was early in the summer. And so that, of course, then takes a while. So, and then I had to go back on the road. So it was not ever a protest song. Stephen Stills wrote it about um, the People, the kids on the Sunset Strip getting together for you know to go to the Roxy and Troubadour and everything, and then the police said, "Well, you can't be keeping everybody in the in the hills awake, so you have to be gone by ten o'clock." And of course, I I don't go to bed till eight in the morning, so just imagine, um, it's like you have to be off the streets at ten o'clock, and they're like, "Are you serious? That's not going to happen." So it turned into like like riots. I mean, they were like, "We're n- you're not going to tell us when we have to go to bed." So we're not going to leave. So that's that's really what he wrote it about. I had no idea, but it is. That's the truth. I had no idea either. That's fascinating. Isn't that great? So everybody has their own meaning for that song, but I just think that somewhere in Stephen Steele's amazing songwriting, visionary, whatever you want to say for what it's worth, he managed in that song to cover everything, 
to cover everything that everybody's complaining about and fighting against in the entire world. He managed in that song to touch on everything so subtly that you didn't really exactly know when it was touching, right? It didn't, you didn't really notice what it was as it went by you and you said, oh, that's my part. Yeah, I mean, to be able to write a song that's so universal and yet can be applied to things that are so visceral and specific for people, that's very rare. And, and you know, there's probably going to be people who's going to go like, well, we, you know, that was, I lived in San Francisco from 196, I graduated in 1966. So I graduated the same year this song was written. And then it came out at the end of 66. So I would have been a half a year into my first year of, of college. So you could have said, okay, is that song about gun violence? Is that song about women's rights? Is it about um, immigration? Is it about you would have, wouldn't have had any idea exactly what it was right about, but you could take it all in to be about anything that you personally wanted it to be about. And um, it, but I know if I'm gonna sing somebody, some really famous rock star guy's song, I better sing it well, or I'm gonna get totally panned. So I put everything I have into doing an interpretation of a song written by a man and sung by a man, especially such a famous man and songwriter as Stephen Stills. So I really did try to stay as within Stephen's realm as I could. And, you know, I mean, I already knew his phrasing because we all do. If you if you put it on, you pretty much know exactly how he phrases every one of those lines. It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like what it is ain't exactly clear. It's like, you know it. You don't have to learn it. You just know it. I'm really proud of it. And that's really basically what I tell the audience is this is a song I long wanted to record. This seemed to be the right time. And I hope that you, whatever your, you know, I don't know if I ever said whatever your views on anything are, I hope that you can rise above that and take it for what it is. And also, just I just hope you like the song. You know, it's one of those songs that hearing you perform it in the recorded environment, I've yet to see it live. You also find this kind of this, this punk rock resistance that, to your point, is subtly simmers uprising that's going on throughout it. You really tap into that. And you really seem to to be attracted to the power of performance. Even when you're at your most vulnerable, it, it's, it needs to be powerful. When did you sort of realize in your life that, that this was kind of a, a through line for you, that, that you found yourself... I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Stevie, far be it from that. But from a fan's perspective, who's listened to your music a lot of my life, I get power out of hearing you perform. I can only imagine that you feel a sense of positive, uplifting power when you are in that moment. Well, let's use for what it's worth as an example. The first night that we did it, which was the first show, I was kind of, first of all, I was just really nervous. We'd been gone for two months. And so we were just all of a sudden right back in front of a big show in Snowmass, Colorado. So I had no idea how anybody was going to, I didn't even know what I was going to say. So I'm not a good person for like writing up a thing and putting it in the teleprompter. So I will usually just wing it, which I did. I didn't know, you know, were were people going to start going like, you know, the worst side, are they going to look at me, this little girl with long mermaid hair and say like, are you trying to take away our gun rights, you know? It's like, no, I'm not, you know. I'm just trying to get everybody to understand that these shootings have got to stop. But I didn't say that. I'm saying it to you and probably shouldn't be But um, because there's fear in that for me. There's fear. I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid now of the world. I have a lot to say about a lot of things, needless to say, that I'm not saying because 
I, for the first time in my life, am experiencing some fear. And my mom raised me to be a fearless woman, to just to never be afraid in this man's world, never. And so this is the first time I've ever experienced like, well, what if I say that and everybody, you know, doesn't like what I'm saying? Because I'm not trying to change anybody's minds. I'm just putting a song out there that hopefully will make people think that I didn't even write. I'm hoping that for what it's worth, for what it's worth, touches people's hearts and like if you care and touches your heart and makes you think about all sides, all 25,000 sides of this question and stop and take a breath. It's really like everybody just stop and take a breath. Stop arguing for one minute, sit down, pour yourself something to drink, put your feet up and take a few breaths Mm. before you go off on people. Because I, I have found in my life that that is not the way to get anywhere. It is to shake your finger in somebody's face. It's never going to get you anywhere. So I have been very lucky in my life as a performer to be able to get my point across without pissing people off too much. So that's always been my, you know, when I write a song, I don't, I go, I write in a very coded way. So I know what it's a, about and hopefully that it will fit into other people's lives for them, not having heard my story. And it's worked really well for 40 years. I think about the dynamic of being a writer like that in a band like Fleetwood Mac and finding your voice in Fleetwood Mac alongside such great writers and great performers. I mean, it really is like it's the closest thing to a to an all-star band in terms of musicians and, and, and writers. And, and just what you sort of learned about yourself being in Fleetwood Mac as a writer, especially now going out and doing your own tours, um, and playing the songs your way without the band behind you or beside you, how you sort of have, have benefited as a writer in that environment? Well, it was, you know, um, Christine's a certain kind of writer. She's our pop star and our single writer mostly over the, over the years since 1975. Lindsay's our k- kind of rock and roll, I don't want to say country really, but say, say rockabilly writer and because his brother brought him all these rockabilly records when he was when he was really a little kid and um so he was just entranced i think in all of the 1950s music so he that's where he came up through and then he's flipped over to like the Kingston Trio and so he had a whole bunch of influences that i really didn't have and so you put Christine blues Christine in in London, going, you know, like Stevie Winwood and Eric Clapton were her friends when she was in school, and they hung out, and we're like, oh my God, that's so fa- fantastic, right? <laughs> and then there's me, you know, who moves around with her parents, whose dad works for a beer company, and it moves every two or three years from when she's in the third grade, all the way up to when she doesn't move with them at, at the beginning of her third year in college. So it's like all of our backgrounds are very, very different. But then it's like, then there was one, there was me, right? Then there was me and Lindsay. Then there was me and Lindsay and Chris. And so there was, then, then it was a trio. It was a duo. Then it was a trio. It was just you. And then it was a duo. So we had to, Lindsay and I had to stop being a duo the day we joined Fleetwood Mac. No more duo, just a trio which was hard since we'd been a duo since 1968, and it was now 1975. But you know what? It was super fun, and 
Christine, I adored from the minute I I met her at uh, dinner at a Mexican food restaurant in Los Angeles. I thought this is gonna be, she's gonna be. She doesn't know it. She's five years older than me. She's gonna be my best friend, and she doesn't <laughs> know this yet, but she is. And she was, you know. And we had the best time. You know, it's like we had we really enjoyed all of those amazing adventures together. And it was like having your best friend in a band with you, which is unheard of. So it's usually you just don't get two girls and a guy, two girl writers and a guy. You just usually don't get that. So we were really lucky. That started us off on such a great foot, you know, that we we just were able to just put on our high heel boots and go straight up the ladder. And Lindsay was happy with it because it, it because Lindsay loved harmony and Lindsay loved three-part harmonies too. So it all worked out really beautifully. It could have worked out not beautifully, but because of all, everything was seemed to be right. They were English. We really enjoyed the whole English thing, you know, and the English accents and the, we just loved it all. So it was just, it was a whole, we walked into a whole nother world with John McVie, English, Mick, English, Christine, English, and me and Lindsay, who were somewhere between country rock, rockabilly, folk music, kinks and trio. And then of course, R&B, me, who loved all the girl groups from the fifties, you know, so you had a, you had a library between those three people. Yeah, it, it just covers, you're right, it covers so much music and so much inspiration. And yet the chemistry of the band was able to stitch it all together into this beautiful patchwork quilt. And just, I mean, there's no other band that could have made the music you made and, and still to this day. And I was really happy with Lindsay's departure. You know, you, you immediately were able to draw upon people like Neil uh, and Mike to come in and play. And I haven't, I, I, I've always wanted to ask somebody in the band about that because being someone who's a huge fan in particular, or for, of both, but knowing Neil um, somewhat, being a fellow countryman, and he's been very helpful to me throughout my life at points in my life, very supportive. How that was for you, being able to draw upon such talent, because it's such a dynamic that you have in the band, and yet both of these individuals seem to fit in perfectly. Well, when we actually split up, we had a tour that was booked. And um, you can't just call up the promoters and say, oh, by the way, we're not coming. You know, we, we, we can't do it. So you can't do that because that is your reputation. It really couldn't have gone another way than we had to go. So we had to go with somebody or we had to figure out a way to have it become a four-piece band. And since I didn't play anything, that would have been really difficult. <laughs> we, you know, I was really good friends with Mike Campbell because I've known him since, again, with Tom, 1979. So I, and, and Mike has sent me a million tracks and I've done, a, I almost always do one or two or three of Mike's tracks whenever I'm writing. And so I knew Michael really, really well, very close friends. And um, I didn't really, I, had, I think I had met Neil, but I didn't really know him well. Michael was a pretty easy fix because it was like, you know, you need a job. So how would you like to do this? And yeah. Mike was like, well, I don't know. Let me think about that for a day. And I'm like, okay, you think about it. And then um, <laughs> we went to Maui and we like, we, we got on our, everybody else's computers and we looked at every possible singing guitar playing guy and, and Mick knew Neil Finn. And so at the end of like a week, he said, well, what about Crowded House's Neil Finn? And, and we're like, well, we He's got a beautiful voice. I mean, you know. He almost kind of plays like Lindsay as well. Like the thing about Neil is Neil rocks. And he also plays with his fingers in a way that yes, I mean, you does. couldn't have picked better. It's crazy. It really was a very easy thing. When we did the year and a half tour that we did, I have to say that Neil and I had some very cinematic moments between doing Landslide and, 
and his... Don't dream it's over, yeah. Don't dream it's over, right. So we sang that two, we, we sang the two together. He sang Don't Dream It's Over, and then I came on halfway through and sang it with him, and then we went straight into Landslide. And it was a really beautiful moment. And for me and for Neil and for the audience. So it was like, you know, and I think that, you know, what everybody would say as far as the breakup of Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac was famous for getting new guitar players. We we were the new guitar player, not me, but Lindsay was the new yeah. guitar player that came in at 75 when Bob Welsh left. And before that, there was like herds of guitar players. So whenever something happened, they got new guitar players. So it wasn't, it wasn't, a strange thing for the band to get a new guitar player or a new or two new guitar players because that's what they had done since I don't know 1965 when they first started so it was you know it was scary and kind of frightening but the fact was is that it fell into place very easy and once again let me say this again we had to go even if we went and did an acoustic set we had to go. We were contracted to do like, I don't know, you know, like 75 shows. You can't just say we're not going. You're absolutely right. You're dealing with real contracts and real financial infrastructure that will collapse without those shows. And that's all the people that work the shows and all the, you know, all the and all your people, all your crew, everybody that works, that has families. And you can't just say like, okay, we, you know, we had a fight and we broke up and now we're just going to go home and like hang out. You can't do that. So we were really forced into having to make that choice. So we did it and we thought we did it well. And when it was over, it was over. You talk about reputation and I think about how people who are making music today, pop music, contemporary, electronic music, how they relate to you. And it, it's, it's always the same way. People are, um, they revere you, Stevie, in such a huge way for so many reasons, for what you stand for, for who you are as a performer, or for, also for your incredible writing. I, I hope I'm not putting him on blast here, but I'm going to tell you the story because I think you should hear it. I had dinner with Damon Orban, uh, who's a good friend of mine from Gorillaz and uh, Blur and whatnot. Oh. And, uh, and, he, and I remember he, he said to me, he took me aside and he was like, you're not going to believe. <laughs> yeah, he talks to you. I'm not going to believe yeah. who is going to be on a Gorillaz record. You just won't pick it. You won't pick it. You won't get it, yeah? You won't get it. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way. And I didn't get it. <laughs> and, when he, and when he told me, the look on his face, he was like a child who just experienced his first Christmas. He was like, Steve, can I swear, Stevie, just for effect? Yes, you, mind? you can. can. I swear? Stevie, f Stevie fucking Nicks is going to be on my record on it was the most amazing moment because it just sent him back to like high school and and it was just so so how was that doing doing the gorillas thing and just and just being a part of that experience well i have to tell you it was really great because when i got the song because greg kirsten sent it to me right and he's like he's like you know um evidently elton john said to um said to him well i you know i think he might have asked elton to do something and elton said well i can't really uh, i can't really sing with with you you don't write like in your <laughs> words in the right place and Right you know, it's in. like, it's really uh, kind of, you know, I sing kind of 
choppy and you sing kind of, well, I just don't know how you even sing. I, I, I don't think I can do it. Anyway, and I was laughing so hard because I had just done a song with Elton and I, and Elton, I adore, but I, I, uh, it was hard. For, I had to learn how to sing with Elton. I mean, I really had to practice like four weeks to be able to sing this song called Stolen Car. And I yes. did it. And I was right there with Elton, but I, it was hard. So anyway, when, so Greg tells me this and I go like, I, send me the song. He sends me the song and I send it, I, I play it for everybody in my, in my like dorm house, right? I, I call Greg back and I go like, oh, I think this is now our new favorite song. And I haven't even <laughs> sung on it yet. But yes, I would love to do this, and I'm going to, listen, I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to sing exactly perfect with him. So I learned that song as if I had written that song and as if I was an Englishman with that accent. And I love it so much, but this is the only thing I asked for. I said, I'm not asking for anything except the, you know, 50 bucks I'd probably charge you. I'm going to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I want to be, if you make a video of this, because that's how I know about the gorillas, is because yeah. of all their crazy cartoon videos. I'm going, I want to be in the, the, the oil video. I want to be a gorilla, and I want to have, like, big false eyelashes. Yes, Stevie, that's the point. I want to have blonde hair. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because because when when Damon came out and did and he guested with Billy, just for when he came out and did the thing with Billy Eilish, I, my wife turned to me and she rightfully said, "Why didn't they make Billy a gorilla? Wouldn't that be exactly. the point?" That's the point. So that's oh, what I said. I said, "This is my one demand that I will make," and um, so it's they're doing it as we speak. <laughs> And, and, you know, the whole song is like, I think the, the song, that song is like somewhere between love and war because when it's on in, interlocking cluster bombs, right? Okay. And then there's like, fill it up with love. My favorite part. I'm like, it's going for interlocking cluster bombs to fill it up with love. And I'm like, somehow this clever songwriter, he's kind of like I'm doing all this hand movements and you can't even see it. Molded these two sides of this and I'm going like, is there a a touch of Ukraine in here? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe. Who knows? But the whole fill it up with love and I can still be this person and I, I, I might, um, what does he say at the end? He goes, I, but I'm not that cold, but I could forget you. But when I walk away, I could forget you. And I'm like, well, that was kind of cold actually, but okay, because it's, a, it's what came to his head when he was writing that sentence, you know? And so I, I learned those words. And the fact that it's called like oil, I'm going, is that like water and oil or fire and oil or, you know, like ice and fire or what, you know, but anyway, whatever it is, I can't wait till it comes out because I'm so proud of it. Now I'm an honorary, I'm an honor, I was an honorary heartbreaker. I was an honorary food fighter. And now I'm an honorary gorilla. I'm so happy. This is my word, not yours. I, I'd never assume you would take this position, but there seems to be a really lovely creative mentorship that goes on with people like Harry and Miley and artists of a certain level of talent that you recognize and appreciate. And it's, it's more than just collaborating on stages or duetting or guesting or whatever. It really does feel to me, Stevie, like you embrace these people and there's something to it. Alton does the same thing. D- does it feel that way to you? I and my little kind of coven of women friends were in London with Harry when he had at least made a tape of all the new songs that were going to go on Fine Line right before the pandemic. 
And we sat and listened to all those songs three times. Three times. Wow. And started at like, we went to Indian food dinner and then at like, you know, midnight and then came back and from two o'clock until nine o'clock the next morning, listened to all, listened to everything three times. Therefore, said nothing the first time through, said something, all of us, the second time through. But by the third time, it was just women. <laughs> and like, like, I don't think that song should go. Harry, no, that's it. It's like, Harry, no, I don't think that song, that song should absolutely be on it. If you even think about taking that song off, we will be back. We will be back. And so it's like, he's that kind of a friend. He's like, he's like, you know, a brother and a son and, and uh, maybe that we were like, you know, best, best friends in another life or something. I don't know. But yes, we're very close. Miley and I, I didn't really know Miley until we went into the Edge of Midnight, Edge of 17 thing. And then um, I, we had so many phone conversations and we're both so loud and so talkative that, you know. We just we just went a million miles during our first phone conversation. So, and we just hit it off. And it was like I, we went back and forth with Andrew Watt, uh, her producer, therefore my producer also, and then Jimmy Iovine got involved and sent them all the the Edge of Seventeen sticks, whatever that means, you know, um, and uh, the sticks, the sticks where everything lives on the sticks, the USB sticks, yeah. And so they had all the original the original vocals and all the original, everything that was important on Edge of 17. And um, it was super fun. And when it was done, I thought it was really excellent. And she, you know, had it not been for COVID, she wanted me to come to New York and do this New New Year's Eve thing, but I, I couldn't go. I just couldn't do it because I still have not got COVID and I'm not getting it. That's my mantra. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm not having it because I'm not having the long haul after effects of it. I barely made it to, you know, 74 years old. I am not going to drop dead of a stroke in two years because of, because I got COVID. So anyway, that's why out here we're being so careful. I, I 100% respect the way that you're touring and doing this safely. I think it's inspiring to others. But I hope that at some point we get to a place where um, we feel safe enough to meet each other in person oh, because you know too. you really are such a wonderful person, Stevie, in every way. And as a fan of music, I want to thank you. And as a human being who's given me your time, I want to thank you. If you run into Neil Finn, you better give him a big old hug. For no, don't hug him. Just stand six <laughs> okay. feet away and say, "Hey, Neil, Stevie sends her love." But listen, thank you. I hope we can talk again sometime. Bye bye. Much love. The wonderful and remarkable Stevie Nicks right here on the interview series. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to leave a comment. I do check them and a rating would be appreciated also. All right. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. <laughs>